Welcome to Inside Scope, the American Gastroenterological Association podcast that will help you advance your patient care one half hour segment at a time. Join us to hear from the experts, learn new skills, and stay abreast of changing best practices. We'll be tackling a different topic each month, so make sure to subscribe and join us on our mission to improve digestive health for all. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Sahil Khanna, co-host of our series, C. difficile, Preparing the Field for Change. This series consists of six podcast episodes for all clinicians from gastroenterology, infectious diseases, hospital medicine, geriatric medicine, primary care, and from academic and community-based settings. We'll explore how to take a patient-centered approach to treatment, diagnosis, explore emerging treatment options, and discuss best practices for transitions of care. In today's episode, we're going to discuss how to reconcile guideline differences for testing and treatment of C. difficile. We're joined by my co-host, Dr. Paul Furstad, and our esteemed guest, Dr. Colleen Kelly. I want to tell you about Paul. Paul grew up in Long Island, New York, went to Pennsylvania, came back to New York for medical school residency and fellowship, and he is a master educator, master clinician, and a master writer who's published multiple articles, textbook chapters on C. difficile and many other GI illnesses. Paul practices at the PACT Gastroenterology Division and is a master clinician. I've sent him so many patients. Paul, welcome again. Seal, so, thank you so much for that wonderful introduction. And we are so delighted to be joined by the esteemed Dr. Colleen Kelly today. Dr. Kelly is a gastroenterologist at the Lifespan Physician Group in Providence, Rhode Island, and an associate professor of medicine at the Alpert Medical School of Brown University. She graduated from the Ohio State University College of Medicine and completed residency in internal medicine at Boston Medical Center and GI Fellowship at the Rhode Island Hospital Brown Program. The focus of Dr. Kelly's research and clinical practice is clostridioides difficile infection and fecal microbiota transplantation. She was the principal investigator for the first placebo-controlled trial of FMT for treatment of recurrency difficile infection and one of the first investigators to sponsor an investigational new drug application for FMT with the FDA and has served on working groups around regulatory issues related to microbiota-based therapies. Dr. Kelly has been involved in industry-funded trials of live biotherapeutic products and collaborated on studies looking at FMT in patients with inflammatory bowel disease. She's interested in the long-term effects around manipulation of gut microbiota and is a PI for the NIH-funded FMT National Patient Registry, which will answer important questions around real-world effectiveness and safety. In addition to co-authoring current FMT consensus guidelines and participating in drafting the European Consensus Conference on FMT in clinical practice, she was the lead author for the American College of Gastroenterology 2021 C. difficile infection treatment guidelines. Dr. Kelly is a fellow in the American College of Gastroenterology and is a fellow and past member of the Scientific Advisory Board for the Gut Microbiome Research and Education of the American Gastroenterological Association. Dr. Kelly, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for inviting me. I couldn't have two better colleagues here to talk about this topic. Wow, I'm really enamored. Colleen and Paul, <laughs> it's great to have you. Colleen, I have, off the bat, I have a question. Why was there a need for these updated guidelines for CDPC? We've seen three guidelines. Tell us more. So the guidelines that I worked on were the American College of Gastroenterology guidelines. They had not been updated since 2013. 
And a lot had happened over that period of time in terms of new availabilities of therapeutics, kind of emerging data on FMT. And the guidelines are really meant to be pretty complementary to the ID Society guidelines, which were published a couple of years prior. The ID Society guidelines get really into the weeds and granular on a lot of the infection control stuff. The ACG guidelines, I like to think of them as a bit more clinical and kind of friendly to a practicing clinician who just has questions about managing C. diff patients in their practice. You know, Colleen, thank you. That was a really nice overview. With the guidelines being complementary, you chose to focus on certain areas, I think, that added to the guideline literature more than duplicated. Can mm-hmm. you just provide insights into what your focus was as the lead author and kind of your direction, what you thought was the most impactful or what the most impactful elements of those guidelines were? Yeah, sure. I was really noticing that there was a lot of uncertainty around the best way to diagnose C. diff. And we see these tricky patients a lot in GI, people who get referred to us for recurrent C. difficile infection because they're having diarrhea and they're testing positive on a PCR-based test. And I thought that we really needed to dig in a little bit on the best way to make an accurate diagnosis. I also wanted, we take care of a lot of IBD patients in GI, and we know C. diff is a big problem in that patient population. So there's a lot of questions about how to manage C. diff in the setting of IBD, and we wanted to focus more on that. And then, of course, FMT, which had, there's just been a mountain of research over the last decade in this area that really was barely touched on in the 2013 guidelines. So those were the three areas we really wanted to expand on. Thank you, Colleen. Uh, Let's talk about one of my most favorite and most uncomfortable topics for me because I don't know the answers. A C diff test is not a C diff test. They're all different. What are the different kinds of tests that are available for people to look at and interpret in today's world? Yeah, it's very tricky. And to be honest, it's not always clear when you look at the printout from a laboratory. Sometimes I have to read it a couple of times to understand what test I'm actually getting. One thing that you see a lot is you kind of see starting out with tests that are more sensitive. You have the GDH assay. GDH or glutamate dehydrogenase is produced in large amounts by any Clostridium difficile, whether or not it's a toxigenic strain. It's a very cheap test to do. It can be done very quickly and it's very, very sensitive. So a GDH assay can tell you C. difficile is there, but it can't tell you whether or not that's a toxigenic form that would be capable of causing disease. Another highly sensitive test is the PCR. And it says um, sometimes toxin PCR, and this is where people can get confused. But what that really is, is testing for a gene that makes that organism capable of producing toxin. It doesn't necessarily mean that the C. diff is producing toxin. It's just there. You can pick it up. As we know, PCR amplifies everything. So it can be there in very small quantities and still be picked up by the test, making it also a very highly sensitive test and sensitive to the presence of this toxigenic strain. The more specific tests and the one that is often should be used kind of complementary to these more sensitive tests is the toxin enzyme immunoassay. And that's where you're testing for the actual presence of the toxin produced by the organism that's making the patient sick. And for those who are older like me, this was back in the 90s when you'd order C. diff times three. Reason you had to do those orders was because the sensitivity of these is, is much less. It's around 85% for some of them. And so you can't really rely on a negative toxin if you have a high clinical suspicion. Things that can make the toxin uh, false negative might 
be you're really early in the course of infection. The amount of toxin in the stool may not reach the threshold to trigger the positive on that assay. Or really, if the stool sits around for a period of time, the toxin degrades at room temperature. So, you know, there's pluses and minuses to all of these tests, but no test, none of the three can stand alone in diagnosing C. diff. You really have to kind of put the clinical picture in. So, you know, Colleen, I, I like to quote your literature most with regards to this and, and the fact that so many patients come to my office with quote unquote recurrent C. diff and about 25% of them don't actually have recurrent C. diff. And I think that's really impactful. And you alluded to this when you spoke about why you chose to focus this topic within the guidelines. So what algorithm do you think would be optimal and what algorithm is most commonly used? So what did the guidelines recommend? And then what is really actually happening? Okay, so the ID Society guidelines recommend that PCR can be used as a standalone test in a patient with diarrhea. You're not gonna miss cases that way, but there really is gonna be a lot of overdiagnosis, especially when patients who are complicated and have diarrhea from all kinds of things also spend a lot of time in the hospital and may be colonized with C. diff. I think, Sahil, you actually also found similar numbers. About 25% of patients referred to you did not actually have C. diff. And so it does get really sort of hard to sort out. Um, The first thing is the clinical picture. C. diff is an acute diarrhea. If you have somebody that comes to you and says, I had diarrhea for six years and nobody knew what was going on. And then Dr. So-and-so checked his C. diff and it was C. diff all along. You know, that's probably not a patient who has C. diff. But in someone with the risk factors, obviously age, healthcare contacts, exposure to antibiotics, we recommended with the ACG guidelines for best accuracy of diagnosis to kind of minimize those false positives or overcalling C. diff to use algorithmic testing. So you start with a highly sensitive test and depending on your lab, that would be either the glutamate dehydrogenase or the toxin PCR. If that's negative, the patient doesn't have C. diff. These are very sensitive tests or they most likely don't have C. diff. If it's positive, then you proceed to the more specific tests, the toxin immunoassay. And if that's positive, then you know that patient definitely has C. diff. If it's negative, then that's where it starts to get tricky. They can be a false negative in the toxin. They can be early in the course of infection. This actually came up recently at our hospital. One of my big concerns with putting that in the guidelines is that physicians would take it too literally and follow the algorithm and say, oh, negative, that must mean colonized. That's actually happening. It happened in our hospital where a patient presented who had risk factors for C. diff. She was PCR positive, toxin negative. They said she's colonized and she was sent home with Cipro. She came back very sick with a white blood cell count of 27,000. And so I think that we have to have education efforts around that. I try to say this when I'm giving a talk. If you suspect that the patient has C. diff, if they're sick, just go with your instinct, start vancomycin. It's much better to treat. Sometimes that actually helps you sort it out. You start the vancomycin and in a couple of days they get better and you say, okay, yeah, this really was C. diff. But just to be a clinician, you know, be a doctor, keep your thinking cap on in terms of broad differentials, the testing can be helpful, but can also be misleading. Thank you, Colleen. One thing that comes up in clinical practice all the time is, do we need to test for every recurrence? How do you think about testing for initial infection and is it different for testing for recurrent infection? To be honest, I really do that on a case-by-case basis. 
I don't know what you guys do, but I have some patients who by the time they get to me, they've had four or five recurrences that are very stereotypical. They stop their vancomycin within five days or seven days. They're having the same watery diarrhea, the smell that they describe, the explosive bowel movements. And then, you know, they maybe had a couple of positive C. diffs along the way. I think in those patients, I don't really think the test is going to change your management. You know, if they call me, on a weekend and they say, I'm having the exact same symptoms I've had four other times before. I know what this is. I'm probably not going to ask that patient to necessarily submit a stool. And I usually have them, if they're high risk for recurrence, which most of the people seeing us in clinic are, I make sure they have Venko on hand at home and, you know, we'll talk it over. And if it sounds like a recurrence, I'll just say, okay, go ahead and start taking Venko. I mean, what do you guys do? Yeah, so I'm exactly the same way, totally case-by-case case basis. The majority of these patients, it's it's purely clinical, and I think that you alluded to that earlier, and that's something that I think a lot of people who are not as close to C. difficile as we are are a little bit uncomfortable with, which is you want to have a definitive test that shows X, Y, or Z, and, and what you very eloquently outlined is we don't really have a definitive test. We have tests that will hint but won't actually really provide that slam dunk evidence. And when it comes to recurrences, so many of these patients will test positive for an extended period of time, even if they don't have the active infection. I think that's a limitation of the testing. So I think that unless there's a scenario where you need to show evidence of toxin and you get an EIA, beyond that, I don't find it particularly helpful. I think asking the questions that that you listed before, abdominal pain, relieved or worsened with bowel movement, frequency of bowel movements, what their baseline bowel habits were before C. difficile, what their bowel habits were when they first presented, where they are now, the odor of their stool. By piecing all that information together, we can largely figure out whether this is another episode of C. difficile or perhaps whether this is something like a post-infection IBS that so many of us see also and tease that out. And the odor of the stool, I think, makes a big difference. I mean, this isn't melana, but Patients know the odor at the baseline, and then they know the difference with C. difficile. And I find that question to be really important, although obviously it's kind of awkward to ask. Mm -hmm. Well, I know they've taught dogs to sniff out C. diff. They had a a beagle that they brought on uh, detection rounds, and its accuracy was as good as, actually, I think it was as good as PCR testing. So very sensitive. Yes. (laughs) It was very sensitive. I do every now and then have patients who come up and say, Doc, now my C. difficile is coming back a couple times a week. It's not there the other days of the week. Or sometimes patients come and say, I sent a stool sample. It was too solid to be tested. Can you give me a kit so that I'll send it to you when it's liquid and not solid? So those are patients I don't test. And by yes. otherwise, my approach is very similar to yours, Colleen, and yours, Paul. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Excellent. I'm waiting so- for these supposedly highly sensitive toxin yeah. acids that are supposed to be kind of in development and coming out. Ours is, you know, at my institution, it's not particularly sensitive. I don't know what they're using at Yale or at Mayo, but I'm hearing, you know, sensitivities up in the 90, 95% range are potentially available or close to available. I feel like we've been hearing rumors like that for years. Uh, I'm still stuck in the three consecutive bowel movement phase from 2008. And that shift up to one was was a major shift for all of us. But again, we, we know the weaknesses of it, hopefully very soon, but I haven't seen any data. So why don't we shift gears? Why don't we talk a little bit about treatment now? And Colleen, within the American College of Gastroenterology guidelines, you chose to triage severity. Why don't you walk us through kind of what that triage was and how it was implicated in treatment of initial infection? 
Okay, well, we did depart from the 2013 ACG guidelines, mm -hmm. which had separated C. diff into mild, moderate, severe, and fulminant. And nobody was ever really able to describe the difference between mild and moderate. So we said, let's just line up with the IDSA. And the IDSA got it's non-severe, severe, and fulminant. And really the difference between non-severe and severe is that white blood cell count of 15,000, the creatinine elevation. And for fulminant, you have those criteria, but at the same time, you have shock, hypotension. You know, these are the patients that are in the ICU, those fulminant infections. And the reason we thought it's important to separate them out is they're generally treated differently. Non-severe infections, you can treat the patient. Actually, this is another place we differed from the IDSA guidelines. If a patient is otherwise healthy, has a non-severe infection, doesn't have a lot of comorbidities, is an older, you can try metronidazole. And as you guys know, the metronidazole was taken completely out of the IDSA guidelines because of concerns of resistance and because patients who have severe disease, when they're treated with metronidazole, they tended to do worse and there was even, you know, increased mortality to using metronidazole, sorry, in that population. Though most patients, whether they have non-severe infection or severe infection, they're going to be treated similarly in our guidelines. You have a choice and we did not position one above the other. You could either use oral vancomycin, 125 milligrams four times a day for 10 days, or fidaxomycin, 200 milligrams twice a day for 10 days. This differed again from IDSA. IDSA positioned fidaxomycin above vancomycin for everyone, but it should be first line for all comers. This was a little problematic for us because we all know how expensive fidaxomycin is. My Medicare patients, some of them are paying copays as high as $1,500 to get that medication. And so we, looking at the data, did not feel that the data was strong enough for the superiority of fidaxomycin, you know, for the price. So potentially as the cost of fidaxomycin comes down and you have a generic, you know, we might potentially pivot and change there. But for, in our guidelines for both non-severe and severe infection, um, you could use either vancomycin or fidaxomycin first line. Colleen, that's very helpful. Wondering if you could allude a little bit about why fidaxomycin is a little bit better than vancomycin for recurrence prevention. Is there a difference in the mechanism of action? Yeah, so they designed fidaxomycin, I guess, to be a little more narrow spectrum. So it's not as broad spectrum as vancomycin that's hitting. Vancomycin not only kills the C. diff, it kind of kills a lot of these really beneficial anaerobes that are in our colon that you're trying to encourage to grow back so that protects the patients from these recurrences. Fidaxomycin leaves the bacteroid of yeast alone, allows potentially the C. diff to be treated while allowing those beneficial flora to remain. And they do have data for decreased recurrence in some patients who are treated early with fidaxomycin. And I think that's the key. I think a lot of times by the time patients get to us and they've been treated four or five okay. times with Vanco, it's a little too late to pull out the fidaxomycin. Though, you know, I've seen people do tricky things like fidaxomycin tapers and pulse dosing and stuff like that, but it, it's a good drug. I mean, I also like that it's a twice a day drug. It's a very effective drug. It's just the cost is really, really high. And I always have to think if I'm paying for this or if you have a patient on a budget, I mean, money can be tight. And if it makes a, if it really makes a difference, you know, I would prefer vancomycin. If the patient's not paying, if, if it's completely covered, then that might come into consideration as well in picking fidaxomycin first line. Excellent. Thank you. So what about for first recurrence? Where did ACG position everything? So ACG was pretty simple. If you used vancomycin first, 
then you should treat a first recurrence or a second episode with fidaxomycin. If you already use fidaxomycin, then you should try vancomycin taper. And the idea was to do something different, do something that you hadn't done before. So we positioned fidaxomycin kind of earlier, I think, in not letting people get into many cycles of recurrence before you pull it out. So if you haven't used it the first time, you should definitely use it the second time. And then Colleen, we've all seen that 50% or maybe even higher number of people get multiple episodes, three or more episodes. What are the guidelines talk about those patients? So this was also, this differed from prior guidelines in that we moved up the positioning of FMT. So we know after a first episode, your chances of further recurrence are 20 to 30%. Once you've had one recurrence, it's around 40%. Once you've recurred twice and gotten into that third episode, that's where you're seeing these people who are at risk of being these multiply recurrent patients, 50, 60%. And so we say in those patients, this is where it's appropriate to offer FMT after you've tried two first-line regimens and failed. So the recommendations with regards to FMT were really comprehensive within the guidelines and very, very helpful, I think, for practicing clinicians, which was really tremendous. You made some other recommendations with regards to FMT, which I think are really important to elucidate here. One was with regards to recurrence within eight weeks, and the other was with patients with fulminant disease. Can you speak to those? So people who recur within eight weeks after FMT? Yes. Yes. So we're retreating those patients with FMT. Actually, one thing that I'm doing, and we haven't published it yet, but it's something that I've had really good success with for failed FMT. I've been giving a dose of bezlotoximab before the second FMT. And with that, I'm 100%. I know a few other people are doing similar things with very similarly good results. We want to go down the bezlotoximab thing after and talk about that a little bit. But I've had most patients, I tell people you got about 90% chance of FMT when it's delivered by capsule or colonoscopy, it's got about a 90% efficacy. For the failures, usually it's just another FMT or two. I have had a very small handful of patients, and I'm sure you guys have too, those multiple FMT failures. I usually take a step back and like, what is going on? And it's typically patients who are maybe living in a nursing home or in assisted care. They're getting treated over and over for urinary tract infections, or there's some reason they keep getting antibiotics, which is undoing the FMT. So, you know, in order to stop the cycle of C. diff, we really have to sort of sort out whether other cycles of antibiotics are going on. And, and I do have patients where we just maintain them long-term on low-dose oral vancomycin after a couple failed FMTs or if they're likely to continue to recur like that. Colleen, you mentioned the word bezlotoximab. It's a drug that's been out there for about six to seven years, not used very commonly in practice. Tell us more about where do you feel that it fits in the guidelines and how should people use it? So that's a tricky one because talk about expensive, that's a very, very expensive drug. You got a drug cost of several thousand dollars and that's typically given an infusion center, which adds to the cost. So it's definitely one you're you're probably going to be getting a prior authorization in order to use it. As far as its efficacy data, and this was one of the sections of the guidelines that I really dug into, you got to treat about 10 patients with bezlotoximab to have it be effective and prevent one of those patients from recurring. So it's a number needed to treat of 10 and a drug that costs $4,000 or $5,000. And if you parse out all of the data, it was really most beneficial in the highest risk patients. So those were people over age 65 and or who were immunocompromised or who had been hospitalized with a severe infection. Those were the ones that were most likely to benefit from bezlotoximab in their trials. And in using bezlotoximab, those would be the patients I would focus on if you wanted the biggest bang for your buck. 
Excellent. And really what you're quoting are, is the data looking at one risk factor or more showing a benefit. But if there's no risk factors, obviously there wasn't any benefit of that product. I think it's also important to think about Beslow in the way that you mentioned it, which is kind of a new way that hopefully we'll see some more data with, which is people who fail FMT, we kind of do a full court press. We attack from an antibody standpoint. We also attack from supplementing the microbiota to really kind of get that spore phase out of the colon. Sahil, do you have anything else that you wanted to discuss today? I don't want to lose sight of, Paul, one thing that you had asked earlier is the role of FMT in that fulminant population. Because I know, Colleen, you talked about that in the guidelines, and you've done more work on this than anybody else along with Monica Fisher. So tell us more about that. Yeah, I actually, I had a really great save last month in a patient. It was actually the patient who her, her CDF had been missed. When they called me, she'd been in the hospital for 10 days on high-dose vancomycin, as well as intravenous metronidazole, and she was going nowhere. The next steps were, you know, her creatinine was up to nine, and the next step was either, you know, going to surgery or palliative care. So I did the initial, I, I came in, it's considered experimental, at least in my hospital setting, I need to do this under IRB. There's a big, long consent form. It's kind of scary. But I told the family, this is really her best chance of surviving this. We gave FMT, unlike the recurrent outpatients who aren't very sick at the time you're administering the FMT, this tends to be a multi-dose process. So it's not just one dose of FMT and you're done. You are really committing yourself probably to doing two or three FMTs over the course of a couple of days. So we did the first dose. I like to do it endoscopically. It's a little scary, but you go in not puffing in too much air and being pretty gentle and getting up as far as you can. It was the worst pseudomembranous colitis I've ever seen. Her colon was just so edematous and just covered with pseudomembranes. It was bad. We put in a dose of FMT and it almost immediately kind of came out of her right all over the bed. But the next day, her white count had gone from 27 to like 24. So we did another dose. I could tell the area where I had kind of hit the day before looked a little better. And I was able to get up a little higher, gave another dose. White count went down to like 17,000. And then after the third dose, white count went to 12,000 and the stools gradually became formed. I did those FMTs like every other day. Another thing that's different when you're treating the fulminant patients, it's pretty hard to stop anti-C. diff therapy in someone with fulminant infection. And while sort of sorting out these protocols early on, we questioned whether we should stop vancomycin when you're doing this in FMT in these patients. And that's actually a pretty bad idea. I think Monica Fisher's data showed that you really need to keep the vancomycin going until the pseudomembranes are gone or until they're clinically resolved. And so in this patient, we kept her vancomycin going. She's ultimately discharged from the hospital. I kept her on a low dose of vancomycin. And my plan actually is to have her come back in clinic and follow up and do the final dose of FMT in her, consolidate the whole thing as an outpatient. After she's had a couple of days off vanco, I have capsules and I'll probably give her that in the office. So, I mean, I was really happy about that. This was a patient that probably would have died or gone to surgery and that wouldn't have been an easy thing. So I do think if you have the ability in your center, if you have the access, I think is the hard part, you know, the access to that material and have ready available source of donor stool where you can do that. Colleen, 15 years ago, who knew stool could save so many lives thanks to the work that you and Monica have done, especially on this fulminant infection. Thank you, Colleen. Thank you, Paul. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in to the episode in our series on C. difficile, Preparing the Field for Change, which was supported by educational grants from Immune Therapeutics, Series Therapeutics, and Ferring Pharmaceuticals. And special thanks to today's guests, Dr. Colleen Kelly and Dr. Paul Forrestad. 
For additional resources on C. difficile, visit AGA University at agau.gastro.org. Thanks for listening to Inside Scope, an official AGA podcast. Make sure to subscribe to be notified as we roll out new episodes. For more GI education, visit AGA University at agau.gastro.org.